0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: In September 1989, as the Cold War thawed, Boris Yeltsin paid a visit to Houston. But it wasn't the gizmos at NASA's Mission Control that impressed him most. The Houston Chronicle photographed the Russian president and his entourage at a stop they made In the nearby suburb of Clear Lake. Yeltsin is in the frozen food aisle of Randall's supermarket, looming over a chest of popsicles. He's grinning and splaying his arms in wonder at the treasures laid out before him. Even the Politburo doesn't have this choice, he told the paper. Yeltsin later wrote that the array of treats on display at Randall's shattered his view of communism the Russian leader was smart to spot the link between suburban bounty and the strength of American democracy. The next election, The Economist reported at the time, would be the first in US history when the majority of voters were suburbanites. The road to the White House has been wending past the lawns and malls of suburbia ever since. With 45 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Priddo, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, who will win the suburban vote? Suburbia will pick the president once more this election. Donald Trump hopes fear of unrest and rising crime will appeal to the suburban housewives he tweets about. It's a strategy borrowed from Richard Nixon, who first harnessed the political power of suburban voters to win the White House. But two years ago, it was the Democrats who took control of Congress, thanks to suburban voters. How did the suburbs become so decisive? In this episode, we'll speak to the woman who saw the suburban surge of 2018 coming. Look back to the battles over segregation that shaped the politics of suburbia and hear how suburban Texas is being transformed. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fazman, The Washington Correspondent. Charlotte, how are you doing? You had a cover story this week. How, how was this week for you?
2: It was a busy week. I was writing about clean energy and geopolitics, but it was good to get that story done. And I'm back in New York City recording from my closet. So moving up in the world.
3: John, how about you? I am very well. I am back in my house in the American suburbs where it's turning nice and chilly and everybody's trotting off to
1: school. Well, that's an appropriate location for this podcast, which is going to be about suburbia. Do you guys consider yourselves suburbanites? I certainly am.
3: I was raised in a suburb of Washington, DC, and I now live in a suburb of New York. My parents were both raised in the suburbs. I am, as much as I hate to say it, and as much as I love cities, I'm 100% a product of the suburbs.
2: I am the opposite. I grew up in downtown Manhattan, I have never lived in the suburbs except for the past six months. That was my first experience of suburban life. And I kind of get now why people say that yards are good for kids now. My experience, in contrast of raising my kids, is that a subway rat literally ran over my son's barefoot while he was wearing sandals. But I still think that we're going to be city dwellers for years to come.
1: Well, I had a rustic childhood and now I live in a city. So I think between us, we've got everything covered here. But there's a reason we're focusing on suburbs this week. They are typically now where elections in America, at least national elections, are decided. Rachel Bitterkoffer is an election forecaster at the Niskanen Centre, and she was one of the first to appreciate how hyperpartisanship has changed how voters behave. In the 2018 midterms, she foresaw how antipathy to Donald Trump among suburbanites would give the Democrats control of the House.
0: Suburban voters are part of a demographic that is realigning to the democratic coalition through two processes. One is generational, right? So like in the eighties, it was cool to be a Republican. If you're of a certain age, you'll remember a show called family ties and this character on it named Alex Keaton. He was a young Republican, a Reaganite. There's no Alex Keaton's now. Like it's not cool to be a Republican at all because of Donald Trump, the way he's pushed the party. Suburban realignments are being powered by generational realignment and the turnout surges that have been produced by those younger and more diverse Democrats and independents at lean left getting freaked out after Trump got elected and deciding to finally vote. And independents also turning out in much higher numbers. So it's a product of those two things coming together. And it really is redefining the map. And we're going to see that big, big time in the state of Texas uh, in this cycle.
1: Rachel, you mentioned Texas as a place where the changing nature of the suburbs might become visible in this election. I don't think Joe Biden's going to win Texas. I suspect you don't either. But tell us a bit about why Texas is a particularly good example of this change you've identified.
0: Yeah. So back in the days before this realignment with losing college-educated whites, like where those suburbs were mattered, right? So if they were outside of Philadelphia or New York, They were liberal, friendly suburbs. If they were outside of Atlanta or Dallas, though, completely different story, right? Now, what we're seeing are suburbs like outside of Dallas, outside of Houston, outside of Atlanta. These suburbs are realigning towards the left. What I expect to happen in the suburbs is the same damn thing that I expected to happen in the midterms, which is a massive turnout surge of Democrats and left-leaning independents. It's Mm. definitely going to be a high-turnout election. But those uh, suburbs, people are looking at 2016. I just don't think that most analysts appreciate just how different Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Milwaukee and the suburbs in Chicago. Like There's a northern tier of of really far-out suburban Chicago area that's in the corner of Wisconsin. Detroit. Like, I don't think people have any idea how different these turnout patterns are going to look from 2016.
1: So Charlotte, over the next six weeks, and it is only six weeks now, we're going to see this fierce contest going on in America's suburbs. When we had Hogan Gidley from the Trump campaign on the podcast, he told us that suburban women were a key target for the Trump campaign and said that they want safety and security. You've seen President Trump you know, hitting those themes again and again at the RNC, if I remember rightly. Somebody on stage said that the Democrats would abolish the suburbs if they won power. There are lots of issues at stake in this election, obviously. But in terms of where geographically the election will be decided, it's going to be in the suburbs in swing states, right?
2: Yes, the suburbs are really home to a huge share of the electorate generally, and then they're particularly important, of course, in swing states. So the definition of the suburb is somewhat shifting, but... Importantly, 52% of people self-identify as suburban. America is a majority suburban country. And you see in the ads that both Biden and Trump are putting out how important the suburbs will be to this election. And, John, you do remember correctly, it was in the RNC. It was Mark and Patricia McCloskey who were the couple from St. Louis who had pointed guns at Black Lives Matter protesters marching past their house earlier this summer. They were the ones who said that Biden wanted to abolish the the suburbs. And so I think you're going to see Trump continue to go big on that between now and the only six weeks we have to go before the election.
3: What interested me most about Rachel's answer was her point that in cycles past, the suburbs of Philadelphia tended to vote Democratic as Philadelphia did and as Pennsylvania did. In other words, the suburbs tended to vote like the state. Suburbs of Atlanta tended to vote Republican, Georgia was a Republican state. Now you see some suburban convergence in the same way you see urban convergence, in the same way that sort of Atlanta probably has more in common with San Francisco than it does with rural Georgia. The suburbs of Atlanta probably have more in common with the suburbs of Philadelphia or Detroit than they do with the rest of the state. And it's another indication of how deeply sort of nationalized our politics have become, that the differences play out across demographic groups rather than strictly geographically. Another thing that struck me is that as the suburbs become more diverse and more reliably liberal, at least under Donald Trump, a larger share of Republican votes are going to come from exurbs, that is those towns that are sort of currently developing, that are somewhere between and a far outer ring suburb and and a rural town. Those are a lot whiter and more conservative. They are, in essence, to Donald Trump, what the suburbs were to Richard Nixon. Those are where the votes he is seeking probably lie.
1: One of the things that fascinates me in this area is how tight the correlation is between voting and population density. It almost seems like there's a magic moment at which population density is great enough that people start thinking that it's a nice idea to vote Democratic. And conversely, once people are more spread out, they think that voting Republican is a great idea.
2: It's funny, that correlation didn't used to exist. So there's been some research on this that shows that Back in the early part of the 1900s and the teens, there was absolutely no relationship between population density and Democratic voting. And then you start to see this relationship emerge in the 1960s. And by the 2000s, recent elections, 2016, 2018, they were very, very strongly correlated, this relationship between density and Democratic voting. And it even breaks down to Fasman's point earlier in the voting patterns among suburban voters. So if you're in a pretty sparse, rural, suburban, exurban area, you are very likely to vote Republican in the 2018 election. And then as you get to denser suburbs, you get more and more Democratic And in cities, there's basically no such thing as a Republican city anymore. Not everything in American politics is so neat, but this idea of density is a pretty mathematical relationship between density and
3: party affiliation.
1: And John, both candidates are making contrasting pitches about safety to their suburban voters.
3: Yeah, that's right. If you remember at the RNC, Matt Gates, who is one of the president's strongest congressional supporters, stood up and said that Joe Biden will abolish the suburbs and invite MS-13 to live next to you, highlighting the idea that Biden will leave suburban voters less safe. That seems to be working a bit, perhaps. I think the SurveyMonkey poll that came out on Thursday showed that suburban white women who feel very safe prefer Biden by a 20-point margin, and his lead disappears among white suburban women who say they feel only somewhat safe. Joe Biden's argument, by contrast, is is basically, look what is happening all around you, that we need a president who will try to quell unrest rather than inflame it. And so we see Trump trying to do the same sort of pitch that Richard Nixon did in the 60s, civil unrest, the suburbs aren't safe, but
1: it's a very different country and the suburbs are very different than they were in, in the late 60s. Thanks both. Of course, that contest over safety and which candidate will keep you safe is an old one in American politics. And in a moment, we'll look back at how the modern American suburb came to be in the first place. Before that, a reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, then you really should be. Signing up is simple and you'll get the best offer by heading to economist.com 2020 election pod. Charlotte is the star of this week's issue. Her three-page briefing on how COVID-19 has upended the energy industry is on the cover this week fasman has been writing about the transformation of the department of homeland security under president trump that's part of a continuing series on what the president has actually done in office as opposed to what he's tweeted you can read those articles and plenty more if you click on that link for a special rate on a new subscription economist.com 2020 election pod it's in the notes for this episode on your podcast app
4: Yes, this is it,
1: my hometown. Modern suburbia spawned after World War II, thanks to the entrepreneurial New York developer William Levitt. With a contract from the Navy to build 2,000 homes in a year, Levitt proved that production line building methods could meet the post-war housing shortage. Government loans for returning servicemen stimulated a steady demand from young families ready to settle down.
4: Fathers and mothers in our hometown are just plain, nice living folks. You know, Main Street folks who say, Hello, nice morning, even when it rains on Mondays. You see, we really are the folks, folks in other nations would like to change places with.
1: Construction of the first Town began in 1947 and caught the attention of The Economist. The cost price of the identikit homes included, quote, Those essentials of the American way of life. Modern heating, electric refrigerators, Venetian blinds, the paper wrote. Affordability came from conformity. Construction workers moved from house to house with a task each, pouring slabs or installing washing machines. A home could be finished every 16 minutes.
4: We built it with civic pride and remain proud of its dignity and friendly, tolerable characters. Our town is kept in order and we are protected from unlawful and disrupting influences.
1: Conformity had its sinister side, too. Levitt was himself Jewish, but barred Jews from his first development on Long Island. He refused to sell his new suburban homes to African Americans. Restrictive covenants even barred the resale of Levitt homes to black families.
4: These civic-minded familiar faces we all know in my hometown think our town is something to shout about. Not you? Some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Mexico. (sighs)
1: Dr. King's murder at a Memphis motel provided the opportunity to end segregation. The day he was shot, the 4th of April 1968, the Senate was voting on the Fair Housing Act. As riots spread around the country, President Lyndon Johnson pressured Congress to pass the bill prohibiting the discrimination in the sale, rental, and financing of housing. A Conservative Congress had been expected to weaken it, but Johnson approved the landmark civil rights law just a week after King's assassination.
4: I do not exaggerate when I say that the proudest moments of my presidency have been times such as this, when I have signed into law the promises of a century.
1: It is time for an honest look at the
4: problem of order in the United States.
1: But Richard Nixon intuited that a majority in America's white suburbs, alarmed by growing lawlessness, would resist such high-minded appeals to progress.
4: As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear
1: sirens in the night. When he spoke at the Republican convention in Miami that summer, rioters had been fighting police on the city's streets. He addressed a more moderate America.
4: It is a quiet voice in the tumult of the shouting. It is the voice of the great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators. And this I say to you tonight is the real
3: voice of America.
1: Nixon's convincing win in the election that November meant suburbia would not be changing anytime soon. In practice, housing remained segregated in many areas in the years following the Fair Housing Act. While the black population in America's city centres more than doubled up to 1980, white Americans continued to move out, taking jobs with them urban ghettos emerged in stark contrast to the comfort and security of suburbia.
4: They want to indoctrinate our children, defund our police, abolish the suburbs, incite riots, and leave every city at the mercy of the radical left. That's not going to happen.
1: The suburban brawl continues to this day. The Obama administration tried to improve things by making federal funding for cities contingent on plans to end housing discrimination.
4: And by the way, I just ended the rule on suburbs. But this
1: year, the Department of Housing and Urban Development announced it would scrap the rule.
4: There will be no more low-income housing forced into the suburbs. I abandoned and took away and just rescinded the rule. It's been going on for years. I've seen conflict for years. It's been hell for suburbia.
1: Back in Levittown in Pennsylvania, The mood couldn't be more different. People from all walks of life support Brian Fitzpatrick. Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick is running for re-election in a district effectively tied between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton last time round. The former FBI agent is a Republican, raised in and representing one of America's original suburbs. But he eschews Donald Trump's apocalyptic predictions for its future. We're all in. His campaign literature doesn't even mention Brian the president.
0: Patrick. He's the strong, independent voice we need. I'm Brian Fitzpatrick, and I approve this message.
1: John, it's important to note, isn't it, that this wasn't just a Pennsylvania phenomenon. Levitt built towns all over America, and this tendency to exclude... African Americans to exclude Jews from newly built suburbs stretched right across the US, you know, from the East Coast all the way to California, where even though people often think of California as being sort of very open and and now liberal, there were loads of newly built Californian suburbs in the 50s that excluded certain groups of people.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the Fair Housing Act was signed into law, as we pointed out, in 1968. There was a Supreme Court case in 48, Shelley versus Kramer that outlawed the enforcement of racial covenants on houses, but those covenants were still there. When my parents bought the house where they raised me and my brother and sister, this would have been in the late 70s, the house still had a covenant on it barring sales to African Americans and Jews. The neighborhood was, you know, not majority Jews, but there were a lot of Jews who were there. Those covenants couldn't be enforced, but they still sort of hung on. And it always impressed me as I grew up and visited you know, other members of my family in every city, there was a sense that there were some suburbs where even into the mid to late 80s, Jews just weren't welcome. And I would imagine that's similar for other non-Christian, non-white Americans, that it's not just a question of what the law can do. It's a question of sort of social practice as well.
2: It's very interesting in American society because there's one thing, which is what the strict letter of the law is. And then there's another thing, which is how societal norms evolve and how laws are enforced. And you saw under the Obama administration efforts to go beyond the Fair Housing Act to prevent further discrimination in housing markets. And Trump, in his presidency, by failing to enforce it, he very much undermined it. He attacked it again and again and said it had a devastating impact on suburbs. And uh, Biden now, in, in part of his platform, he says that he would enforce that Obama-era rule. So my point here is basically there are rules and there are norms around the rules and there are enforcement around rules that add another very powerful force in whether suburbs continue to be discriminatory or not.
3: The Fair Housing Act jurisprudence has essentially evolved to try to do something about those informal norms and the way rules are enforced. And it's very hard because it gets quite nebulous, right? Donald Trump himself has never particularly liked the Fair Housing Act. In 1973, he and his father were sued by the Justice Department for discriminating against African-American tenants. They were not convicted, he and his father, Managed to settle with the Justice Department and promise not to discriminate. Um, it was settled after Donald Trump tried to countersue the Justice Department for a hundred million dollars for making false statements. So it seems that he has always had a sort of be in his bonnet about the Fair Housing Act. It's never been something he's he's particularly warm to.
2: One of the things that I think is really interesting about Trump and suburban voters is the way that he appeals to female suburban voters. And it to me kind of highlights the divide between the rhetoric among Democrats and Rhetoric among Republicans because on the left, you had this incident in May, which people may remember, where there was a, a white woman in Central Park who called the police on a black bird watcher. And this went viral and she apologized. And it, it was a big cultural moment about the way that white women, in seeking to protect themselves, can make a black person vulnerable by uh, calling the police on someone who isn't doing anything wrong. Trump, in contrast, really leans into the idea that suburban women are under threat and plays that up a lot. He has been tweeting uh, over the summer about how suburban housewives are going to be voting for him, and he says explicitly that he wants to end the program where low income housing invades their neighborhood. In an event celebrating women's suffrage, he talked about how women don't want to have low-income housing shoved down their throats and you see him trying to marry this issue of women's rights suffrage to the right not to have poor people in your neighborhood and so to me it it just really exemplifies this huge divide between the way that democrats and donald trump talk about both race and and suburban voters
1: okay thank you both we'll be back in a moment to look at how the suburbs are changing and how that might affect the outcome in november mm-hmm. When I spoke to Rachel Bitterkoffer, she mentioned Texas as the state where the suburbs have changed most dramatically from the identikit white enclaves built by the Levitt Company and its many imitators. Candace Valenzuela is running for Congress for the Democrats in Texas's 24th district. It covers the suburbs between Dallas and Fort Worth.
5: There are a lot of folks that have moved into this district, so now it is majority person of colour. As of 2016, something like 20% Latino. 12 or 13 percent Asian-American, somewhere between 11 and 12 percent African-American. That change in demographics is not the only thing that's changed in in this political landscape. Even Texans who don't fit in those demographic changes are seeing the changes at the federal level, and they would, quite frankly, like better and more representative folks up there in D.C. representing them.
1: She had an interesting take on how the people in the suburbs she's hoping to represent would respond to Donald Trump's emphasis on law and order.
5: I think suburbanites are pretty savvy about what they consider security. Uh, That's one of the reasons that many of them tend to move to the suburbs. They don't just move for safe neighborhoods. They also move for strong schools. They also move for job opportunities. They move to be able to enjoy their families and and public parks. And quite frankly, most of those things I just said... (laughs) are inaccessible uh, to folks in the suburbs, when we, we can't go to school the way that we normally would, when we can't celebrate holidays with our families, when we can't go to work, uh, we're we're not feeling safe or secure. Uh, I think soccer moms like me understand that our, our future isn't going to be safe until we're taking care of, of COVID, until we're taking care of health care, until we're taking care of living wages, and we're invested in the future of, of breathable air, we're not going to have safety or security.
1: John, Valenzuela is a really interesting candidate, isn't she? I mean, if you look at her campaign ads, which I think is the best I've seen in this cycle for an individual member of Congress, it begins in the suburbs with her making sandwiches for her children and then you know, goes into some detail on her life story, which is pretty extraordinary.
3: Yeah, it's impressive. She is the first Latina and the first black woman to serve on her local school board. She was born in El Paso to army veterans. As you say, her ads are really good. The district is interesting. Kenny Marchant has represented it since 2005, a Republican. And before that, it was represented by Martin Frost, who is a fairly conservative Democrat. But it's now a toss up district. And I think that testifies to the ways in which the suburbs of Texas are, are changing, are becoming more diverse, becoming more educated, and because of those two things, becoming more democratic. I talked to another suburban politician outside of Houston, further east in the state, Joe Zimmerman, who is the mayor of Sugarland, Texas. And Sugarland is fascinating. It's about 44% white, a little over one third Asian with sizable populations of of Latino and African-Americans as well. So it's a quite diverse suburb outside the most diverse city in the country. He made the point when I spoke to him that the Sugarland population, there are a lot of small business owners and their concerns are largely economic, which suggests to me that the sort of fear tactics that Donald Trump is using, the Democrats are coming, probably aren't going to work. What they're going to want to know is who is going to be best at getting the economy back on track. They may vote for you know, low regulation, it sounded as though in ordinary years, they may be reliably Republican voters. Of course, this is not an ordinary year. But the extent to which Valenzuela's ads and the concerns that Zimmerman said his residents had are just the concerns of ordinary Americans of whatever race, background, ethnicity really stood out. In that sense, the suburbs really are a microcosm of America, and they're changing as America changes.
2: We've had Sugarland on the show before. I feel like you have a little, phasmid, a, a broadly a, a Houston obsession, but in particular a Sugarland obsession.
3: It's a Sugarland obsession, a Houston obsession, and an El Paso obsession. And of course, Candace Valenzuela was born in El Paso. So this segment really sort of hits all those sweet spots.
1: To the point you made in passing, John Fazman, about folks in Sugarland being most worried about the economy. I mean, that is one area, let's not forget, where Donald Trump still has an edge in polling over Joe Biden. You know, He still remains more trusted on the economy uh, by Americans than Joe Biden is.
3: Yeah, he remains more trusted. I think also the specter of socialism that Republicans are trying to paint Biden with may be effective among Latinos and among recent immigrants from China who have experience with socialist governments. And so I think that is another, along with the fear-based tactics, that socialism tactic, is another tactic that the Trump campaign is using that may appeal to more diverse suburbanites.
2: Suburbs have become more diverse in large part because of immigrants. Immigrants have accounted for about 30% of suburban growth since 2000, which is A pretty remarkable figure. And perhaps I think kind of even more interesting to me is that it's a lot of first-generation immigrants who are going straight to the suburbs, which is a change from the past. You think of the old trope of people coming straight to big gateway cities and remaining there for a long time before before moving to the suburbs. Now many are skipping the gateway city and just settling in the burbs. It's also worth pointing out that it's not just Sugarland that's diverse, right? I mean, outside of Houston, but also Las Vegas, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., the suburbs of those cities all became majority-minority in the past 20 years.
1: Yeah, it feels to me like we may be coming full circle here. I mean, you can tell a story about American politics, which begins in the 60s with Richard Nixon, where the driving force in American politics is this reaction in suburbia, in American suburbia, this kind of conservative reaction against liberal diverse cities and a kind of search for safety, and that that benefits the Republican Party. And now, as Charlotte says... American suburbs are becoming so much more diverse that a meaningful number of people in the suburbs now are actually reacting against the Republican Party and see it as a threat to their safety. So still you have politics cast in, in terms of safety in the suburbs, but the party that that benefits, you know, may be flipping in 2020. Okay. well, before you go, I have a quiz for you. You'll be delighted to hear. Earlier, we mentioned how William Levitt more or less invented American suburbia. In August 1963, The Economist wrote of the entrepreneurial builder's plans to expand abroad. Where was the first of Levitt's planned communities outside the US? Good Lord.
2: I would guess that's Canada or Britain.
3: Um, I'm going to guess further
1: afield. What about the Philippines? Those are both nice tries, but in fact wrong. It was the outskirts of Paris. Les Résidences du Château opened in 1965. Its 500 plots included innovations previously unknown in French mid-market housing, among them Le Driveway. <laughs> is it is it is it really called Le Residence
3: du Château? It really is. That sounds like somewhere the French Witness Protection Program puts you.
2: I have to say, I have been in a part of Long Island for much of quarantine where on the drive from the place where I've been to the highway, you pass a lot of American versions of chateaus. So you see like this giant um, quasi-French chateau, except with dark tinted windows and a few extra Italian um, sculptures in the garden. It's it's really an example of cross-cultural exchange at its best, I think.
1: I'm sure Le Driveway is magnificent <laughs> on the chateaus you've been passing, Charlotte. The Economist wrote, and this is a quote, Europeans cannot help but admire the spacious and good workmanship which Mr. Levitt gives for the price. So, so there you go. By coincidence, McDonald's' French HQ is just a few miles from the first Levittville. But France was not the first place outside the US to get a branch of the Burger Behemoth. Which country had that honour? Ooh, the first McDonald's abroad. Germany? Canada? It was indeed Canada. It was in Richmond, British Columbia, a suburb of Vancouver, in 1967. The first one to be opened in Europe uh, was in Zandem, in the Netherlands, in 1971. The French had to wait another year to enjoy Le Big Mac. It didn't arrive in France until 1972. Well, thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. And au revoir. Thanks, John.
2: I'm tempted to just answer that with boursin.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> Bye.
1: That's all from us. If you like the podcast, please tell everyone. Leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radioeconomist.com. At in the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week.